Tonight on Arena, Brendan Gleeson, Colin Farrell and Martin McDonough on the new film The Banshees of Inisherin, and Rebecca Miller on her short story collection Total. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. On a remote island off Ireland's Atlantic coast in 1923, the long-standing friendship of two men ends suddenly and catastrophically. And in Martin McDonagh's new film, The Banshees of Inisherin, the occasionally violent fallout from this breakup is felt in the small island community against the backdrop of the civil war playing out in the far distance of the mainland. In the film, Colin Farrell is Porrick, a somewhat simple man whose life completely falls apart when his friend Colm, played by Brendan Gleeson, dumps him for no apparent reason. And what follows is a very human tale of rejection, persistence and heartbreak. The Banshees of Inisherin was filmed in the late summer of 2021 on Ackle County Mayo and Inishmore in County Galway, not far from where writer and director Martin McDonough has his family roots. The film premiered and got a 15-minute standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival last month with Colin Farrell winning the Volpe Cup for Best Actor. This weekend, Sinead Egan met Martin McDonough, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, all working together for the first time since In Bruges 14 years ago. But before we hear them, let's listen to a clip from The Banshees of Inisherin, featuring Gleeson as Colm, Farrell as Porrick, along with John Kenny and Pat Short, Unbelievables, as Jerry and John Joe, the barman. <laughs> how do, how do, Porrick? Sit somewhere else. Huh? Uh, but I have my pint there, Colm. He has his pint there, Colm, from when he came in and ordered his pint before. No? Okay. I'll sit somewhere else, so. Are you rowing? I didn't think we were rowing. Well, you are rowing. Well, you are rowing. He's sitting outside in his own like a watchman call. It does look like we're rowing. I suppose I'd best go talk to him so. See what all this is fecking about. That'd be the best thing. Colin, your character, Porek, he has a very human reaction <coughs> to a very human experience. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that? How did you find Heartbreak. Out Just yeah. heartbreak. Something that we can all relate to in our lives from, you know, some of us from a very young age, some of us from later. But inevitably, the world hurts us and relationships hurt us and, and caring for people hurts us. And sometimes it's the price you pay to be in a relationship where care and love is present is, you know, even the fear that comes as a result of the threat of loss of that relationship. But here it's not the threat, it's the actuality. You know, in the first two minutes of the film, this fella tells me that he just doesn't want to be my friend anymore. And there's not much I have in my life outside of the love of a couple of people, him being one and Kerry's character, Kerry Connings character, Siobhan, my sister being the other. So, um, yeah, the ultimatum that he gives me at the start is utterly crushing and, and I, I don't think I understand the kind of house of cards that is beginning to fall apart within me, you know, but the whole story is my my dealing with and reckoning with the consequences of my life being finished as I know it or as I knew it. And Brendan, Colm is... He's a stubborn man and he's just looking for a bit of peace but, and he's conscious of the clock ticking, isn't he? Uh, you see, the thing is, I'm not sure he's that stubborn. I think that what he is is desperate. I think he's reached a degree of despair at the beginning, which again, when in rehearsal we were, I was tended to move towards 
what happens later. Um, and if Martin more or less to think about the beginning of, the, of where he is at the beginning and it, it just like opening the door so ah oh my god he's kind of at that desperation stage before we start so the severity of the way that he goes about it has to do with his own desperation as much as it has about just the need to get it done it's kind of about survival really so similar thing Martin sorry Martin loves he loves you to just jump in. He's not yeah. really one for building up to the story. Okay. He wants you to know the story is already happening. By the time you sit in the chair almost and the credits come up, you're fully in it. Now yeah. what happens when you get in there and the mess that needs to be unraveled, that remains to be seen. But it was the same thing like with my response to your, to your you know, demands in that first scene when you say, you know, I, just don't, I don't like you no more and that's the end of it. It wasn't like I just thought maybe he's joking and maybe the, Martin was very he wants certain, full impact. very certain that the shock that I felt was, was something that I never experienced before. Like my whole world fell apart in that moment when he says it, you know, because we, we were going, yeah, and we were going, you know, is it not, maybe it's not, maybe it's not that heavy. He's still wondering what does he mean? There was no, in a way I, uh, you know, my character lacks an intellectual understanding of why he's doing the things he do or why he has the needs that he has. But the weight of the needs is something that I feel all too clearly. You know, that was something that I noticed because we've been chatting, we've been doing, you know, press rounds and stuff like that and talking. And sometimes, you know, Barry Kogan's reaction to being uh, what, what Siobhan tells him. Uh, Cole was talking about how long the camera just stays in his face. And yeah. How much is expressed within that. And, and uh, watching it last night, from that opening, my opening line about that, where I say to that, the camera stays in your face for so long. And that impact and... The, and the, real, and the confusion, but the realisation and the dread. Like, there's so many emotions that are passing across your face in that way, and we just stay with it. So that idea of jumping directly into the... Into the yeah, it's very powerful. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, because we're used to... I'm used to ramping into stories. We're all used to ramping yeah. into yeah. stories. And a story begins to, you know... But Martin shows you the whole thing at the start, and then he goes, well, where can that go now? Like, I'll show you the top of the mountain, what you think is the top of the mountain, but there's another mountain behind it, and there's another yeah, mountain behind it, you, you know? Yeah. Um, Brendan, it, in his poem Epic, Patrick Hammer writes about, I made the Iliad from such a local row. And that's this again, isn't God's it? God's made their own importance. Yeah. That's exactly it. And that's, it's something that, you know, the idea of the local story being, you have to be very careful because a local story can just stay local sometimes and actually becomes parochial and doesn't communicate itself. And I think uh, other other thing about writing deep in what you know and that it will find its own level. It's, if you unearth a truth that is metaphysically universal and that it applies across the board, it, it becomes the best communication. For, like, it's been amazing that people of different cultures are, are zoning in on this because the emotion is universal. Sometimes you can write about Kavanagh uh, and keep it, you know, talking about a ditch and it remains about a ditch or it remains about your ditch rather than the, the, everything. Uh, so it's a very, I, I believe it, I've always wanted to do it, say, for example, as far as my own kind of aspiration is being concerned, I've always wanted to stay in the everyman. It's great crack going out and doing the great or the, or the fantastical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for me, the most interest is Same. always in the everyday. Same. I think, yeah. That's totally, yeah, 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 yeah.
getting back to the specifics of this particular film and where you filmed it, I mean, you were there in Inishmore, you were on Achill Island. How excited are you for the people of that place to see this film? Because, I mean, they were with you. There was a few there last night, you know what? I was absolutely relieved, oh, a similar yeah. relief that you experienced with your pals, your musician friends. Yeah. Um, I was just so relieved uh, that none of them took umbrage or felt insulted yeah. or slighted or like we were casting aspersions and on judgments on life on the island. Yeah. I, I, I didn't realise I was okay. and why until was last night. Why didn't I realise or why was why I worried? Why were you worried? Because you're telling a story that, that is using the backdrop of a certain kind of um, geographical place. Even though Inish Erin doesn't exist, we all know we shot it on Inishmore. Mm-hmm. We all know we shot it on Ackle Island. We all know we're telling the story of an island set off the west coast of Ireland. We're so we, we can't music, wash our yeah. hands. We're playing Irish music. We're speaking with Irish accents. It's an Irish story. Mm-hmm. And I think it does have a universality to it in relation to the human condition that is allowing people of all cultures to be drawn to it and, and find um, an expression of their own experiences in this story. But essentially, it's a very, very Irish piece. And so I just, they, they welcomed us into their lives. They welcomed us into their, literally into their homes when we were shooting there. And, and we all became pals. It was like one big family effort. So I just wanted them to feel like we weren't, we weren't above it. We weren't supercilious in any kind of way because that was the last thing we were coming from. So a few of them last night saw it and they came back afterwards and they said, it's all in there. It's beautiful, really. We feel so proud yeah, of it. And, and it was the best review I've ever had. Yeah, you, you know? can feel threatened. You know, like, you can feel threatened that in some way you're lessening, the, you're lessening. There was a whole thing about a brother birthday, for example, where some people in the South thought, they're, oh yeah, they're taking the good parts of our culture and then they're laughing at it. You guys are, no, not at all. It, there's a kind of something where, like, there's a thing of community in this. And well, I was kind of really worried about it from the very beginning because I knew the story where the community turns, turns like the way, you know, so you see if a dog is kind of, you know, suddenly wounded in a fight or something like that, all the other pack of dogs turn on him in a way that's, and like, there's a little bit of, tur- of the community turning, but it's like, it's as true. Like they turn the on me day. in the film. That's what I'm saying. It's like they, they turn and I was afraid that they would that people that we, we were treated with, that we saw the best of community and communal living, would feel a little bit kind of hard done by, by the fact that in this film we're exploring when the thing turns over the other way. Yeah. And like, it's really, I was talking last night about Twitter or something. It's actually such a modern thing to do and a, and a constant thing to do that when people, when the, when the thing flips, suddenly everybody turns on somebody and the cruelty that comes, you know, in rejection. So when you're thinking about the community that we shot in, you don't want them to think that's a reflection of their community. It's because we're talking about the human nature and the whole culture is heightened anyway. The language is heightened. It's deliberately epic in a way that hopefully will transcend time. Um, so you'd, you'd be care- I would be worried that people would feel, aren't they making... But there hasn't been that. Like, I was really... Um, I had some people over in London seeing it, you know, and I was really, really worried that they, that, that would be the reaction. And it hasn't happened at all. Some of you were people from the island yesterday, yesterday mm. and we were just, as get they were more or less saying. So the fact that that has transcended any of that, that what people are thinking about the loss of a friendship, the loss of a relationship, the loss of, you know, through grief mm-hmm. or whatever else, is, uh, it's fantastic. It's, it's been taken um, and it has crossed that boundary. Now I'm sitting here next to you, and if you're going back inside, I'm following you inside. And if you're going home, I'm following you there too. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. With all my heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. 
Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. You do like me. I don't. You liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. I thought you did. Martin, this started life as a play, and you were intending to make it as part of your Aran Islands trilogy. So why did it end up as a film? It didn't, it didn't. There was, there was a play that was never quite finished called Banshees of Inishir from like 20 years ago, but uh, I was never happy with it, never finished it. Totally threw it away, um, but kind of like the title or, or a version of the title. So I went back, kept the title, and about seven years ago wrote a sort of version of this story. Again, not very good, chucked that away. But I reread it three years ago, and the first five pages I kind of liked, and it was literally the same five pages of this of, of a guy just saying he doesn't like his friend anymore. Mm. But I got rid, I didn't want it to be a plot based film, so it, I just let the drama of these two characters tell the story after that. And um, it kind of wrote itself quite quickly three, three years ago. And um, yeah, I sent it to the two guys and, and we all said yes. What made you want to make a film about, or a story, about stubbornness and rejection? <laughs> um, I guess those two words probably weren't in, uh, it, it, literally just a sad breakup story was, yeah. was what I was really going to, and, but not have it be the usual, you know, romantic one, um, but have it to be, you know, a, a male friendship that ends horribly, just, just felt like there was, there was something that hadn't really been seen too often true, before. Yeah. But just to keep the sadness of that was, was uppermost. Brendan Gleeson's character, Colm, he very much frames his rejection of Porrick as um, him being conscious of the passage of time and wanting to devote more of the time that he has left to the things that he loves. Yeah. So it's framed as an artistic choice. Why was that a dilemma that you wanted to explore? Um, I think, well, first off, it had to be something more than just disliking a person, I think. That wouldn't have given enough drama to it. But I guess part of that is, is something that I always think, I guess a lot of artists think, is like, are we wasting time? Are we doing things that are getting in the way of, of creativity? So, so I think once I, I gave him almost a bit more of a reason to break up than a simple dislike, um, it allowed textures of, of art and, and time-wasting and, and, um, and what we're supposed to be up to and what relationships are like uh, to factor in. I don't know if this is a fair question, but whose side are you on? Ah, I'm on, as, as the father of the two characters, um, I love them both equally. I think it's probably 51% in Colin Farrell's favour. Okay. But I think on the, at the script stage, it was like 60-40, you're all with him. But because Brendan is such a sensitive actor and because we kind of discussed of his reasons for what he's doing, I think we've, we've hopefully, it's kind of equal, but I think niceness is important and, and Colin's character is all about that. So, so I, I don't like the whole idea of artist in turmoil and being cruel to people as, as, as a useful thing. So I still lean a little bit towards Colin. The Civil War is key to this film. We see it on screen uh, in the distance, but really it's so important, isn't it? It is, it is. It's, 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 it's always there. And this little story is almost like a microcosm of, of, of how um, awful things can get when we don't talk when we, we are stubborn and, 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 and um, you know, you almost want to let an audience 
have that experience of, of, of the war here and this war here and without explaining it too much, but it is a very important factor in it. Your family roots are in the west of Ireland. How did it feel to film there in the summer of last year? Because, I mean, it, the weather was just astonishingly good, it which is stunning. not necessarily representative. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's always it's like... Most, it was the best weather I've ever seen. Yeah. My, my parents' house are on the sort of road from, from um, Galway to, to where you get the ferry to the Aran Islands. So at weekends, I just go back to mum and dad's house. You can see the Aran Islands from, from their place as well. So um, it was perfect to, to be able to hang out and feel at home. But I've always been sort of coming back to, to the West since a seven-year-old or, or even younger. I can't just I can't remember from before that. And before it was like Sligo as well. So Mayo Sligo is where, where we um, went to for part of the filming too. And I remember going to Inishmore when I was a seven-year-old kid too. So it's always been a factor. The landscape has always been there in my head as a, as a person. And it was great to be able to capture it. And because of the weather to capture it so beautifully, I think. Martin, you, you've decided now to focus entirely on film in your career. Why is that? What does film give you in terms of telling the stories that you want to tell that theatre doesn't? Well, yes and no. I mean, I've been sort of saying that a little bit lately, but I, I, it's not a hard and fast thing. And I think I will, I'm sure, do another play or two at some point. But right now, um, I don't know if it's a post-COVID thing, but... but uh, to, to leave something behind that everyone can see in, in, in years to come is what I'm kind of thinking about now. A play, when it's done, is, is gone forever. Um, but, but to get something right on film and know it's going to last is... is if, if I've got 20 more goes at this, I think that might be a better legacy. That's a bit too fancy a word, but I, I'm kind of aiming down that road. I didn't hear those to be a session. Last minute tea. Colm decided. All the ladies love Colm, you know? Always did. Yeah? That's not true. You're still bad, Dominic. Out! You said bad until April. Well, what do we know? April? Well, put that stick outside anyways, and don't be bothering the women. There's women? There is women. And good ones. And that was Barry Keoghan as Dominic Pat Short and of course Colin Farrell in a scene there from the Banshees of Inish Aaron and I believe it was Brendan Gleeson playing the fiddle in the background. Before that we heard writer and director Martin McDonough and Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson the stars of the films of the film rather talking to Sinead Egan. The Banshees of Inish Aaron goes on general release in Irish cinemas this Friday. We will be reviewing it on Thursday night's programme. Very exciting um, Thursday and Friday for us actually here on the programme. So on Friday evening, we will be live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera for Arena's RTE Short Story Special. We'll be there with the judges of this year's RTE Short Story competition, Lisa McInerney, Ferdia McConaugh and Eilish Nguivna, and all 10 shortlisted writers. We'll have live music, extracts from the stories and live performance, insights into the art of the short story and we will hear who has won the big prizes including the top prize of €5,000. By the way, if you'd like to read the stories, they're all available right now on rte.ie forward slash culture. They'll be broadcast here on RTE Radio 1 11.20pm 
every night as part of Late Date with Cahill Murray. Tonight's story is The Big House of Nora Toad by Rachel Hines. It's one of the 10 stories chosen from over 1,700 entries to this year's RT short story competition by Lisa McInerney, Ferdy McConnell and Eilish Nagevna, the three judges, as I said. And Rachel Hines, author of The Big House of Nora Toad, joins me now. Um, it's such a great title that, uh, that, that you have for the story. It's such a great name for a character, Nora Toad. Tell us a little bit about how we find our, who she is, in fact, in terms of this story, which has been told to us by somebody looking back, uh, Rachel. Well, yeah, it's a great title. It's a very memorable title as well, Nora Toad, because it immediately captured your attention. Who is Nora Toad? And I think, Sean, that's the real driving force of the story. Uh, and she's a shapeshifter, of course, in it. She's variously described as a bird, a hare, a collection of bones. There's this unknowability about her, especially in the village that she lives. You know, there's mysteriousness about her. And because of that, you know, she's an outcast. She's an mm. outsider. So there is a bit of derision there. But I think really Nora is a monument of grief and time. And of course, grief is a thing that shapeshifts. You can never really put your finger on grief and it pops up when you're least expected. Mm. You know, she's a legacy, a dream. She's completely amorphous. So consequently, I think the main character is trying to patch her together from what she has left. And all she has left are pieces of her clothing. Uh, She has tall tales of her. But as the story develops, she does become more human. And that was very important to me. Um, she becomes flesh and bone. And I think the, the, I think the um, narrator is, is really, you know, she's very urgent about mm. wanting to remember her as a person, as somebody who was there and mattered. Yeah, well, let's have a listen to a clip um, from the story read by Derv Lacrotti. Uh, people can hear the story in full tonight. Uh, and, and as you say, uh, Rachel, there is this, we don't quite know who she is. And certainly the, the narrator is trying to kind of remember the first time she saw her as a child, all of that type of thing. But the attitudes of the other people in the community yeah. are very interesting mm-hmm. here as well. So this is a section from The Big House of Nora Toad. I was picking dog roses on the old bog road when the click of Nora Toad's bicycle wheel came around the bend. The midday sun was warm at her back and a black skirt hem flapped round her shin. The bicycle was laden with carrier bags, Stripy plastic sacks bursting with tins, milk bottles and plastic packages of sweet cakes. A strange feeling rose up inside of me because roaring drunk, Billy Buckets, with paint all over his overalls and his false teeth leppin' in his mouth, had once told me that Nora Toad was a hare by night. Whisht, Billy, Egypt, my uncle glowered. Wasn't old coffee out lampin' when his good lorcher cornered her a few years back near the Toad Domain? Billy continued boldly, cowering in a grove of trees, moon-eyed with the sleekest brown peltoner that you ever saw. She had two big pinty ears and strong, sleek hind legs. When Coffee released her from the dog's jaws, she ran through the dew-covered grass and disappeared into the big house. She's had a limp ever since, I'm telling you. She's a witch hare. Look for yourself, girl. That's Derv Lacrotti reading a section there from The Big House of Nora Toad, one of the ten shortlisted stories for this year's RTE short story competition. Rachel Hines, author, is with me now. Lots of little things that come up there, not least uh, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, as we hear. Uh, and also Irish folklore all over the story in different ways. But I believe you did have a, th- there is a real life model in some ways and, and was in your mind for this character of Nora Toad, Rachel. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think the emotion in the story is fully mine. But you're a writer of fiction, so you've got mm. to let your characters mushroom in the dark. You know, they've got to kind of float in an ether of their own. Um, but, you know, I think in a universal sense, Nora is a constellation made up of many small town characters from my childhood. You know, she's a nod to a generation that are long gone. You know, she's elements of my grandfather in her as well. They had this kind of sensibility and way about them yeah. that has been lost. And also there's a tension in the story between the child's eye and the woman's eye. And the child sees her as a fascination, as a witch, but also as this gatekeeper to a, a heritage and an intellectual kind of a culture. But the woman, who is now a mother, sees her as a very lonely soul. And that's well trod, yeah. um, you know, in, in literature. But it is something that I was really, really interested in. Yeah, so again, well, it's, yeah, she's, yeah, she's it's well, work. yeah, it's well trodden in literature, as you say, but you've trodden it in your own way, Rachel. And congratulations on that. And congratulations on the short listing. Hope to see you. Uh, well, I will see you on, on Friday evening. That's Rachel Hines there talking to me about her short story, The Big House of Nora Toad, uh, from one of the 10 shortlisted for this year's RTE short story competition in honour of Francis McManus. Going out in full, you can hear the full story on Late Date with Cahill Murray 11.20pm here on RT Radio 1 all 10 shortlisted stories over the coming fortnight it's also um, we will be broadcasting ourselves live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary this Friday 21st if you'd like to come along find out about tickets they're now on sale paviliontheatre.ie you can read all of the stories as well on rte.ie forward slash culture now we had a competition on Friday evening but we were dealing with the death of Robbie Culture and in the midst of all of that we never announced the winner of the competition so let me be clear that the prize was a pair of tickets to see Solar Bones starring Stanley Townsend at the Everyman in Cork with an overnight stay at the Metropolitan Hotel and those that prize was for the 2nd of November the winner of the lovely prize was John O'Brien from Wicklow Town we did phone John afterwards and he was delighted and incidentally Solar Bones with Stanley Townsend in the Abbey Theatre from the 20th through until the 20th 29th of October, ahead of that run in Cork at the Everyman, so you can check that out there. The award-winning filmmaker and author Rebecca Miller has directed seven films to date, among them The Ballad of Jack and Rose, which starred her husband, three times Oscar winner Daniel Day-Lewis, The Private Lives of Pippa Lee and Maggie's Plan. She also directed Arthur Miller Writer, a biographical yet personal essay on her father, the playwright Arthur Miller. She's also the author of the novels The Private Lives of Pippa Lee and Jacob's Folly. Her eighth film, She Came to Me, is on the way and is adapted from one of her own stories, which can be found in her new collection which is called Total. Delighted to have Rebecca Miller join us on the programme this evening and let's start with that title story if we could Rebecca. Um, I knew that there was uh, some anxiety in people around the use of smartphones and technology. This brings the smartphone and the damage it may cause to whole new levels. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> it just seems like every time something is invented that just seems so great and so perfect, it has some terrible side effects. So that's where I was was going with that. This is a somewhat futuristic story. So it's in the near future, achievable future, where there are these phones called total phones. And if you use them, you can achieve a kind of 
total communion communion with the person on the other end of the line. And it's a kind of like prelapsarian, like, you know, before the fall of Adam and Eve feeling and, 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 and incredibly pleasurable and uh, people get addicted to the phones. But what happens is eventually there's these strange children need start being born that have triangular shaped heads and there's strange dispositions and they don't live very long and they and they finally link it to the total phones and it's called total syndrome and um so in in my story the the main character Roxanne her mother was part of the development of the total phone as a scientist and she had a total child and that's Roxanne's sister and Roxanne decides to try to spring her her um her sister hmm. from the the total center which is the place where they keep totals yeah the, the word total appears a lot in, in the story <laughs> it has to be said um however w- one of the things that really struck me about this is and there were several things that struck me in the story i, I would have to say but this story has been with you for for a very very long time and in fact w- is it a dream or a series of recurring dreams that are at the at the heart of it well in a way, because when I was when I started out, I was a painter and my paintings, I, I painted a lot from the dreams that I was having. And I had a cycle of dreams where these these babies, I had these babies, and I, they often had these triangular heads. They were almost not they were human, but not human. And they had they were sort of wise and it was a whole thing. So that was a kind of series of paintings that I did. And um, somehow, as I started to write about the total phones and the, the whole story. It came to me that in fact, uh, you know, that the total would look like one of my paintings. Um, and, and that's interaction, I suppose, between the various parts of your art form. We'll come to how, and indeed one of the stories in this book, as I, I've said already in this collection is a, a film that's on its way to us. We will come to the, the interaction between the various aspects of your artistic practice. But that move from, if you like, the visual aspect of those paintings from, I think, the 1980s and 90s into this story, is that is that a type of unusual gestation? Yeah, I don't think I've ever really linked the paintings to story or to storytelling in that way. Um, so this, in some ways, is the most ancient or the going, going way back in my past um, to where I was really painting seriously, which would have been in my really in my 20s, my late, you know, and I stopped maybe at the end of my late 20s. And, and and what what stopped and what moved you then more in the direction, I guess, of the word, but still the image photography was there as well. And, and the image, obviously, in your filmmaking, what do you think shifted or changed? I think that actually it was has something to do with the connection of dreams to paintings, to wanting to make films that were more connected to the dreams. My early films were very um, experimental and didn't really have a beginning or an end. And I worked where they were just pure, purely visual, almost like moving paintings. And then I started to link my love of storytelling and my little the little short stories that I would write, never thinking I would publish them, um, and, and thought, well, maybe I could write more narrative things and link my the image part of me with the storytelling part of me. So it was this sort of long, I mean, it was quite a long gestation. Um, but that's basically what happened was I fell in love in, with the idea of making films because I felt like they were possibly the the truest way that I could express myself, all the different dimensions mm. of myself as a writer. But 
I mean, as a, as an artist, but at the same time, I think that there were came a time where the practical demands of filmmaking and how much money they cost. And the fact that I couldn't get any of it um, really made me think like, what am I really? I'm a storyteller, you know, I'm a visual storyteller, but I'm also a storyteller. And that's when I started to teach myself how to write fiction. And that my first collection was personal velocity, which I then later did make three of those stories into a film. But um, at the time I was really just thinking, I want to keep moving forward. I don't want to sit here uh, if Mm. nobody will let me make films. And so that's how that happened. And there was um, some acting done along the way, of course, not least, which brings me to another story in the collection called The Chekhovians, because, and and sadly, it was a Peter Brook production of The Cherry Orchard, wasn't it indeed, that you were part of? Uh, and obviously we yeah. lost we lost Peter Brook just a, a couple, of, uh, couple of months back at this stage, July of, of this year. Uh, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, well, first tell me a little bit about that experience of Peter Brook and what you remember of him. Oh, he was fantastic. He was he was he would sit absolutely immobile with one hand on each knee. And then one day during rehearsal, he moved so that he was sitting with his elbow on one knee and his chin in his hand. And it was the talk of the company that he'd moved. (laughs) (laughs) But he was just a very Zen like character in a way. He had enormous sense of how it of how to make a show. Like I know in a way, you know, he's thought of it with so, so much reverence and rightly so, but at the same time, he was also a great showman and he really knew how to, mm. he thought of the, the whole company as a big snake that would be, was all connected. And it was all about us kind of being connected to each other. So that if there was one person made an exit, another person made the in, an entrance, and we were connected as if we were all part of one big being. And a lot of the work that he did before we started actually acting and before we started really rehearsing the play was about making us into one being. Um, so it was a really extraordinary thing. And in many ways, I would love to get to a point where I could have the freedom to work more on in film the way that he did on stage, but that that's a very hard thing to get. Yeah, he he brings less is more to a whole new level. If you say the yeah, wizard. we had what we just had one big oriental carpet. No, you know, no. Um, yeah. No props whatsoever. Nothing. Yeah. yeah that, well, that, that's his empty space really, isn't it? But let, let us talk a bit about the stories, uh, the story rather in the collection then, the, the Chekhovians. Uh, and because we are in, in, some, in some ways a kind of Chekhovian world, but a, a modern American version of it. Huh, that's interesting you say that. Um, so because I spent so long uh, playing the cherry orchard in the cherry orchard, I, I was Anya and we did it for years. Like mm. um, we traveled all over the place with it. And so that that Chekhov was very deep inside of me. And I started thinking about and I've always been really fascinated by the Hamptons, even though I don't live there or have a house there or anything like that. But I have visited people there and there's something about those and and also um, Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. There's something about those particular beach areas that there's something about the light and the way that people live that has always really fascinated me. I thought it would be interesting to 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 talk about a family that's on the way down that came from very old money from. Um, a lead mine in Colorado, like that's been just dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. And there are these, you know, very refined people, but they live in a kind of in an impoverished way in this grand house. And then next door is the family 
the son of their former gardener has bought this massive, beautiful mansion. And he has, he's a, he's a hedge fund manager and he's got a lot of money and his daughter is, is about to get married. Um, to this man and she's engaged to him. And it's really the story of that family and the Chekhovians. I mean, it's more centered on the Chekhovians and this girl, Lara, who's the daughter um, of the family. And the reason they're called the Chekhovians is that the, the, the family on the way up um, sort of jokingly calls them the Chekhovians because they tick all the boxes of being Chekhovians. Like, you know, the, they, they, they had a little boy that died. The mother is a kind of faded actress, very beautiful and tragic. The, the, um, her brother is sort of like waffles on about absolute aesthetics all the time and is, you know, constantly talking to his old handyman. And they have a kind of, they, they, they have all the parts of the, of the Chekhov play kind of like, right right there so they all thought it was hilarious to call these people the Jacobians but yeah, meanwhile it, 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 that's, yeah. it struck me that as you as you describe it all those Jacobian characters were there and are there was there any was there any side of you that that thought about it as a play or would think about playwriting in that respect I didn't actually know it hasn't occurred to me that it could be a play um uh, and I have never thought about really playwriting. There have been moments in my most greatest frustration with some of my movies when I like Ballad of Jack and Rose, when I thought I was never going to get the money. I thought maybe I'll rewrite it as a play, but the very thought of it, partly just the idea of all that effort to rewrite it again as a play was too much, but also, you know, because of my father, I, I never really considered playwriting. I just thought that was just too much. <laughs> what was it? Was it too much of a shadow or too much of, you know, the giant on your shoulder and, and all you'd ever be asked about was, did you ask your father about the play? <laughs> well, no, like, yeah, I mean, exactly those reasons. I felt like it was too much of a shadow. Like I, it was hard enough to carve out my little identity, you know, uh, mm. on my own. And then to, to, to ask for trouble in that way just didn't seem like a good Idea. So let's go back to the to the collection, and in fact, um, I'll I'll stick with the the idea of uh, how the the art forms that you have practiced interact with each other. And she came to me uh, a rather unique story in the collection, in that it is a, a male protagonist here, uh, a writer searching for a bit of juice, as he as he calls it himself. He's he's lacking in inspiration. Um, what do you think of Kieran Fox's methods of of sorting out his lack of inspiration? Well, I don't think that's how he means to get inspiration um, with an encounter with a with a sort of fascinating stranger that he can't decide if she's you know if she's really irritating or really attractive until he's you know at the other end of the experience, but. I don't know. You know, it's funny. It was one of those things that it really just came to me. I mean, like the story came to me and Kieran Fox came to me. I myself was trying in the beginning of the story, he's trying to find a parking space in the, in the, St. Stephen's Green parking garage where, you know, and I myself had done that many times where you keep going around and you think you're just going to go on forever up this sort of like winding. <laughs> it's like, and you're getting sweatier and angrier. And anyway, I mean, I guess in a way that particular story is also unique in the collection because it's almost formed like a joke. Like mm. it's very simple and it's very one thing. You know, you go back a little bit in time, but mostly you really are in the present and it, it, it's 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 got a kind of um like it's like its own little marble. Whereas a lot of the other things, like the other stories, like Jacobians and definitely I want you to know mm. um, 
and vapors are more almost novelistic. Like they have a collapse, they have a sort of, they kaleidoscope time and they play with time a lot. And, and you end up knowing a huge amount, but in a very short space, space of, of time. time. Yeah. Do we get to see lots of Dublin? Because we, we do feel, and I almost felt myself walking with Kieran around the streets of Dublin at times. Very well, familiar. Yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't set it. I set it in the States, but you know, I have to say, I, I would love, I've been thinking about this a lot. I, I would love to find a way of, of, of filming here. I, I've always been a bit shy to think that I could um, really in any big expansive way speak about, you know, Ireland because I'm, you know, I'm not Irish and so on. But somehow if they, if I could, I would very much like to, to shoot here. That would be nice. <laughs> Don't tell me still after 30 years living in Wicklow, you're not, you're, you're still being referred to as a blow in then, are you? <laughs> I guess I just, well, it's not quite 20, it's 25, but I guess, yeah, not far away from 30. Getting there. <laughs> Um, you, you mentioned your father earlier on, and obviously a, a lot has been written in recent times about the with the release of Blonde, Andrew Dominic's film uh, based around the Joyce Carol Oates examination of Marilyn Monroe. Adrian Brody plays uh, your father, Arthur Miller. You made the documentary about your father, Arthur Miller, writer with Damon Cardassus. Twenty years of filmed footage of your father. What did? How did that? Was that really about your dad as opposed to Arthur Miller, playwright, which is the person? Uh, that everybody thinks they know? Well, I think in a way, you know, I, I did it because I had started filming him when I was about 21 in a kind of a way of thinking no one else is going to get this stuff and I'll give it to someone one day. And at the time I was a painter, so I wasn't really thinking I was going to, you know, but it was just kind of, some of it was just very casual. Then gradually when I started making, becoming, when I became a filmmaker and I started making films and I, I got a prize one day for one of my films and it was film. It was actually cans of film. So we used it to do the more formal interviews in the film, but it, it, it's got so much layering of kind of casual, um, family footage mm. in it. And I thought at a certain point, I just thought I really have to put this stuff together. I, I can't stand it. It was like a monkey on my back. And so I, you know, Damon and I, you know, Damon really found a lot of it and we, and I ended up, you know, cutting it. But I think that what you end up with is that it's a mix. I mean, it's both my, you know, experience of being his child. And so my view, but, but really mostly other, you know, like seeing him as a, as a subject, because you have to, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the documentary takes place before I'm born mm. you know, Cause of course he was, he had a whole life. So you really do have to kind of, uh, in a way, dub, double. You're both the daughter, but then eventually you're just the filmmaker, which is a strange experience. And there is a scene within it, if I, if I remember right, where I, I think you're speaking to a sibling, or you're, where you mentioned this. Do you, do you, did you get this idea that dad liked being adored, I think is the, is the actual phrase. And it's at yeah. that moment that a picture, a picture of several women come up, but particularly of Marilyn Monroe. Is that how you saw those particular relationships? Did you look at them as a daughter or as a filmmaker? Well, I think... You know, you can't really separate. They're the same thing. You know, I'm, I am myself and I am also a filmmaker and I, but, but, um, you know, I think you can, you can emphasize different parts of yourself. I mean, I, I think that, you know, him loving to be adored is definitely something that we all knew about him. The context of that statement was that we were talking about the failure of his marriage with Mary Slattery, which was his first wife, who I think could be quite hard on him and quite, you know, like really 
didn't give him a lot of slack. Maybe that was one of the reasons that he didn't work out so well. I don't know. Finally, um, really please tell me that uh, after um, now, at least after this collection and now that you have an Irish based story within it, that the people of Wickley will start accepting you as not just a blow in. Because obviously Daniel Day-Lewis is a full blown Irish man. Surely he can help you with that. I'm sure they do. I mean, it's just it's it's not that I don't feel accepted. It's a different thing to write in the voice of a culture, though. And that's you know, that that's that's a little bit different, I think. But we'll see. Maybe I'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, it's been lovely to have spoken with you this evening. Thanks for your time, Rebecca. Thank you so much. That's Rebecca Miller. And Total Collection of Short Stories by Rebecca Miller is published by Canongate. Playlist is a new limited series from Netflix about the ascent of Spotify, the music streaming service inspired by the book Spotify Untold. The fictionalised Swedish six-part series tells the story of how Daniel Ek and his partners found an opportunity in the battle between music industry's heavy hitters and music piracy. Ek decided to build a free but legalised music streaming service along with his business partner Martin Lawrence and little did he know that the service would revolutionise the global music industry while facing unforeseen challenges along the way. Dave Henry has been watching the playlist for us and he's with me in studio now although I have a funny feeling that Daniel Ek knew exactly what he was at in terms of revolutioning, revolutionising the music industry because that's, that's the story that's been told here based on the 2019 books Spotify Untold but we're in a fictionalised world here Dave? We kind of have to be. Daniel Ek and I guess more uh, prominent Spotify higher-ups weren't involved in that book whatsoever. Uh, the guys who wrote that one were given quite short shrift and it's a lot of kind of, you know, insider sources. This person said that. Ek wanted nothing to do with it. And this is the thing. I mean, like when I first approached this, I I went in blind and I thought, oh, it's, it must be a documentary. Mm. No, it's fictionalised completely. It's a drama. It's a mini-series. And the drama is like amped up as much as they can. I mean, like the, the obvious comparison, uh, comparative point here is The Social Network from 2010, the great David Fincher film, mm. which is one of the best films of the last 12 years. Uh, is this one of the best shows of the last 12 years? I don't know, but it's like it, there are worse things to kind of, you know, hit your mask yeah. to. It has a very clever mode across. I've seen two of the episodes. Uh, the first episode is quite definitely from the viewpoint of Daniel Ek. But it switches the point of view from episode to episode. Yeah, to a different person, uh, all based on real life people apart from one character. But also the first episode ends with uh, this sequence where another character just shows up where Daniel Ek happens to be. And I was watching this about mm. a week or two ago and I was like, ah, oh, come on, that's a ridiculous coincidence. But then, oh no, hang on, he breaks the fourth wall and he looks at the camera and he says, that's not how it really happened. Yeah. So we, we've seen episode one, which is basically the Daniel Ek point of view. He's trying to, the, the, what was the, the pirate's age, the big pirate? Um, the Pirate Bay. The Pirate Bay. Yeah. He He's seen that. He's seen that they're in every house across the world. But... They are not legal. So he's looking away to have this music streaming service and to legalise it. And we're, we're kind of on his side at the end of episode one. It switches though then. Yeah, I mean, he presented this as kind of rebellious kind of coder, essentially. I mean, like he wants it to be free and legal, but he also wants the technology to be better than what is available. Mm. And that's kind of the whole point about his obsession. He's rejected by Google and he pins that letter up on his wall as he goes back and listens to his playlist in this very, very 2004 era kind of thing that we all had back then. But yeah, as you say, perspective changes and it changes to 
a guy called Per Sunden, who was the head of Sony Music Sweden. Then we get to talk about the, the legal aspect of this whole thing. We eventually learn more about the business partner, who's played by a very charismatic actor called Christian Hilborg, who steals the series for me. So each episode ends, someone else takes up the baton, like literally breaking the fourth wall, and then that's the hook. The hook is we've got the vision, the industry, the partner, the law, the coder, the artist. So you get all these different perspectives. Sometimes you see a scene again that you saw in episode one, but generally it moves the plot forward, like chronologically, I guess. And does your sympathy switch then to whoever has the point of view from episode to episode? Generally, yeah. And like, that's a good skill that the show has. I mean, the portrayal of Daniel Ek is one that, much like Mark Zuckerberg in The Social Network, I don't think the real-life Daniel Ek will be thrilled with this. He's presented as a very kind of ruthless guy at times. Someone who... Essentially, his vision ultimately corrupts him. This is a tale of absolute power corrupting absolutely as it goes along. And by the end of the six episodes, even though we kind of stray into interesting territory, it is kind of like, well, you know, you set out to do one thing, to be this Robin Hood kind of character. But now, did you sell out along the way? And these are valid questions that people ask about Spotify today in general. The Taylor Swift story, everybody will know uh, her association with with, uh, Spotify. How is that story handled Uh, Well, she's not in the show, of course, Mm. uh, because that would have been quite the coup for this Swedish drama series to get her in. Uh, For people who don't know, Taylor Swift took her music off the platform at one point in her career to kind of, I guess, leverage power. And, you know, Taylor Swift is one of the few artists in the world who can actually do this, and it would cause a major, major problem for the streaming service itself, as it did. How is it handled in the show? Um, You get this kind of oily American agent type who has a meeting with the Spotify guys, and they have this kind of tete-a-tete. Again, social network style, not as sharp but still interesting. Let's have a listen to that to a clip featuring then the uh, Taylor Swift's agent Paul Abd- Ab- Albertson playing the part here and Christian Hilberg as uh, Martin and Daniel played by Edwin Andre having a dispute or discussing the, the Taylor Swift situation bad language in the middle of this. Stanley. Daniel. Very nice to meet you. You too. Martin. Hi Stanley. How are you? Listen, I uh, just want to say thanks for coming. I really appreciate it, and uh, yeah, I hope we can discuss this amicably and come to a solution. Absolutely. <laughs> Please. Just to be clear, we're not offering your client special terms. That's never going to happen. Hmm. Yeah, we're talking about uh, Taylor Swift. Well, we treat all artists on Spotify exactly the same. Martin, I don't know if it's right time to play Galen Korte just now. Sorry. Right now, Taylor is outstreaming her nearest competitor two to one. She was responsible for one in 20 streams on your site. What, uh, you just gonna walk away from that? If we have to, yes. Guys, come on, eh? It's not 2006. You're not the young punk scaring the hell out of us anymore. This is 2014, right? We know Taylor drives traffic to your site, and we just want to share. You want to share? Let me show you what your share would look like if uh, Spotify dies and uh, piracy takes over again. What, are you fucking serious? That's this guy for real? Huh? What? You're trying to be fucking funny here? If I wanted to be funny, I'd offer to beat you in a dance-off or arm wrestle you. In fact, we can do that anyway, because that's how much difference this will make to reality. What the- 
And that's uh, Christian Hilberg, Evan and Andre and Paul Albertson in the scene from the playlist. They could have had Taylor Swift uh, played by somebody else, but they put a fictional artist in instead, David. Or yeah, they do. Uh, a character called Bobby T, who shows up in the very, very first episode as this childhood friend of Daniel X. So his kind of connection to the artist world. And as the show goes on, um, she shows up. Her episode is the final episode of the series. And like literally, like she pops in at the end and uh, at the end of episode five and says, did you forget about me? Because the whole point is, well, of course, the artist, the dispute that the artists yeah. continue to have to Spotify. You heard in that clip there, we were kind of smiling because, you know, we treat all artists the same. I, I, I'm sure there are people listening to the show right now who are like, no, they do not. Not with my music you got to be a Taylor Swift or a Drake or someone else to kind of get the maximum amount of revenue. Um, should people stick with it to see the very odd ending, which we're not going to reveal, but is it worth staying with the six episodes you've seen all of them? Yeah, no, definitely. I was entertained by this. I mean, it's it, like it kind of meanders a little bit at, at times. I think that the fresh, different person perspective really, really works for it. I should note as well, it's in Swedish for the for the most, for the most part. part. There's occasional yeah. lapses into English. But yeah, we can't give away the ending, but it has a very, very strange thing that it does, given that this is based on true events. Uh, they take a big swing. I think it just about clears the fences, but uh, right. divisive enough. I'd say. All right, that's Dave Henry. Dave Hanratty speaking to us about the playlist, which is available on Netflix right now, and that is our lot for this Monday evening. Claire Hogan researched. Gar Duffy was on sound. Amadine Passadevine was the broadcast coordinator. Tonight's program produced by Kesey. Talk to you tomorrow night, seven o'clock here on RT Radio One. John Creedon will be with you after the news.